listen to Wilman. I'm your host, David, and today we have the second part of a kind of a mini-series about cult movies. If you're a regular here at Cinema Wellman, first of all, thank you. We appreciate your consumption of all things Cinema Wellman, whether it be uh, the blog or the, the podcast or the YouTube show. Thank you so much for being here with us when there's so much out there for you to graze. A uh, special thank you for those of you who remember Season 1, Episode 14, A Beginner's Guide to Cult Movies from last October. You've been with us a while. In that episode, we took a look at 20 essential cult films and attempted to define exactly what a cult film is, since that classification means so many different things. We here at Cinema Wellman chose to agree with the author Jennifer Ice, who wrote um, 500 Essential Cult Movies, which is one of my Bibles when it comes to cult movies. That and Danny Peary's three different books, uh, cult movie books, that will be very, very quoted during this episode, um, and I he will be thanked and and noted. I'm not I'm not stealing anything. Uh, his writing is great, and what he has to say is great. So I wanted to share it with you. Um, <clears throat> again, we decided to uh, agree with Jennifer Ice on her de- definition of a cult film, and she says that a cult film is one that inspires an almost unhealthy level of devotion in its fans. Keep in mind the fact that you cannot intend on making a cult movie. It just doesn't work that way. Kind of like you're not being allowed to decide what your own nickname is. (laughs) If you haven't seen that initial cult movie episode, I think you should, since today's episode is really only half of the list, as it were. Uh, If you were to watch all 35 uh, movies featured in these two episodes, you'll be more than able to hold your own in a barroom discussion on the subject. And cheers. The following films are presented in alphabetical order since I didn't want to offend any members of any cults by attempting to rank them. So here we go. Let's unleash the madness. We're going to begin in 1981 with An American Werewolf in London. Director John Landis began working on this project when he was 19 years old, but it wasn't until he had directed three hit movies, Kentucky Fried Movie in 1977, National Lampoon's Animal House in 1978, and The Blues Brothers in 1980, before he had enough cred and could secure the $10 million that he needed to finance this film. That's right. $10 million used to be a lot of money in Hollywood. Most producers thought what Landis wanted to do was too scary to be a comedy and too funny to be a horror movie. And I think they're kind of right on both counts, and yet this film is great no matter what genre you want to attach to it. The music itself is wild. Three different versions of Blue Moon, Van Morrison's Moon Dance, and Credence doing Bad Moon Rising help to make this very watchable and listenable. David Naughton, the werewolf, and Griffin Dunn, the best friend slash early victim, are tremendous in this. Naughton's David Kessler carries on the Hollywood tradition of a good person who, through no fault of his own, becomes a werewolf. He's a very likable and sympathetic character. This movie deals with the, quote, hopeless, lonely struggle of the good, decent protagonist once he realizes he has become a werewolf, must murder innocent people, and is a threat to the ones he loves, end quote. That's Danny Peary from Cult Movies 3. The transformation is horrific and painful to watch. Special effects makeup goat Rick Baker won the first 
Oscar ever given in the special effects makeup category. It's still amazing 42 years later, especially since it's all makeup and practical effects and no CGI. Dunn is along for comic relief and does a tremendous job with the task, even when he appears, and maybe especially when he appears, as a rotting corpse. David, this movie is a lot of fun and perfectly walks that line between horror and comedy. Next, a film that does not do that, from 1982, Basket Case. The fact that Basket Case and E.T. came out the same year gives me great joy. This film, about a young man and his formerly co-joined, extremely deformed twin brother, who he carries around in a big wicker basket, is not for the faint of heart. What's in the basket, kid? Easter eggs? A reviewer for the Detroit Free Press wrote, quote, It's like E.T. as written and directed by a psychopath, end quote. Famous film critic Rex Reed declared it, quote, the sickest movie I have ever seen, end quote. That's high praise. When it was first made, the distributors wanted to make it the next Eraserhead. But one of the problems was that Eraserhead was an art film, while Basket Case is a monster movie. And the monster is quite monstrous. The basket-dwelling Belial is uncomfortable to watch, but he's a very sympathetic character. One reviewer noted, quote, Belial has a personality. Besides his annoying tendency to murder, he's jealous, sulky, possessive, witty, and even can be grotesquely cute, end quote. The viewer feels bad for what's happened to him and his brother, and we actually root for them as they seek revenge on the doctors who separated them against their will. It's gory, but sometimes the gore is so excessive that it's funny. My only problem is how the filmmakers turned Belial evil evil towards the end. There's an extremely distasteful scene in this film that I won't go into, but it's kind of when you stop supporting Belial and his brother. Well, at least Belial. Basket Case is extremely more accessible than Eraserhead, but then again, a lot of movies are more accessible than Eraserhead. Next on the list from 1971, The Beguiled. If you know Clint Eastwood and like his movies, you may have missed this one since it's so non-Eastwood. The Beguiled is a story that takes place during the Civil War. Eastwood plays a wounded Union soldier who's taken in by a group of women at a Confederate boarding school for girls. While recuperating there, he charms his way into many of the girls' hearts, older students and teachers alike, causing them to turn on each other and eventually on him. I remember watching this thriller with my mom and we kept looking at each other with wide eyes as if to say, this is not going to end well. And and we were right. Catch this if you can. It's a sleeper that won't allow you to sleep. And there's a lot to unpack. Next, from 1986, we have Big Trouble in Little China. I'm not going to spend too much time on Big Trouble in Little China because it's quite difficult to explain everything that's going on. For example, we have Kurt Russell playing Jack Burton, who's kind of like Snake Plissken Light. Uh, we have ancient Chinese wizards. We have alley fights featuring what seems to be hundreds of people fighting. We have the three storms who are kung fu masters who appear out of nowhere, and they fly, which I love. We have green-eyed girls being sacrificed to monsters. We have David Lopan sending people to the hell where people are skinned alive. We have elaborate airport fight scenes, and we have some oddly distracting knee-high boots on Burton. I seriously couldn't look away from them. They're terrible. So this comedy fantasy adventure pretty much has everything you'd want in a cult movie. And who doesn't love John Carpenter and Kurt Russell? Next on the list from 1962 is Carnival of Souls. 
If I owned a haunted hayride, I would have screens set up along the route, and I would show Carnival of Souls on a loop. This thing is visually bananas. IMDb tells us this. After a traumatic accident, a woman becomes drawn to a mysterious abandoned carnival. Any film that has anything to do with an abandoned carnival is a horror movie in my book. Carnival of Souls stars no one you've ever heard of and was shot in three weeks for about $30,000. For a low-budget film, it has plenty of thrills and chills. It's a box office failure, trait shared by many cult movies. Because the filmmakers never secured a copyright, the film went immediately into public domain. If you'd like to see this, just look around for it. It's most likely streaming everywhere for free. Carnival of Souls was creepy enough to inspire George A. Romero to make Night of the Living Dead six years later. That should be all you need to hear to put this one on your list. You do have a list, don't you? You get a list. Next, from 1993, we have Dazed and Confused. All right, all right, all right. Cinema Wellman's love for director Richard Linklater and his films, especially this one, is no secret. There is something about his style, the way he creates characters, and how he tells a story that has always appealed to me. Dazed and Confused is about the adventures of high school and junior high school students in Austin, Texas, on the last day of school in May 1976. I think the reason I love this movie so much is the fact that I was in eighth grade in May of 1976. There's an awful lot of this movie that feels like going home to me. There's no way I was ever cool enough to hang out with the coolest kids depicted in Dazed and Confused, but so much of what Linklater puts on the screen in this film was personally familiar to me. Just about every character depicted in it reminded me of someone I went to high school with. I guess things tended to be the same all over in May of 1976. I love this movie so much that when I visited Austin with my cousin John a few years ago, I insisted that we find a moon tower because, you know, party at the moon tower. I was not disappointed. Those things have a wild story behind them, and that should be a documentary in itself. I rewatched the trailer while writing this to get the next part right because of its importance. I've quoted it many times, and I usually end up paraphrasing it, but I wanted to get this right from the source. Behind every good man... There's a woman, and that woman was Martha Washington, man. And every day, George would come home. She'd have a big, fat bowl waiting for him, man. And he'd come in the door, man. She was a hip, hip, hip lady, man. Amazing. Next, from 1975, Death Race 2000. Some cult movies are deep and disturbing and grim. Other cult movies push the limits of taste when it comes to sex and violence. And then there are cult movies that are just downright silly and outrageous. Death Race 2000 definitely belongs in that last group. This is so overly campy that parts of it are hysterical. Here's how IMDb described it. In a dystopian future, a cross-country automobile race requires contestants to run down innocent pedestrians to gain points that are tallied based on each kill's brutality. Yeah, that's it. That's what it is. Paul Bartel directs and stars along with Mary Warrenoff, and it was produced by Roger Corman. That is a cult trio if I've ever seen one. The top build stars are David Kung Fu Carradine as Frankenstein and Sylvester Stallone as Machine Gun Joe Viterbo. Stallone's more convincing in this than in parts of Rocky. Uh, it's got a high body count of 33 for a comedy, and it's impossible to enjoy it if you take even one second of it seriously. Next, from 2001, Donnie Darko. 
There are cult movies out there that people totally love but don't quite understand. You may be able to top such a list with Donnie Darko. I've seen this movie over a dozen times and I absolutely love it. It gave Dakota the idea for my first tattoo. Donnie Darko will always be special to me. But I'm not going to sit here and lie to you by telling you that I understand it. Does IMDb understand it? Synopsis, please. After narrowly escaping a bizarre accident, a troubled teenager is plagued by visions of a man in a large rabbit suit who manipulates him to commit a series of crimes. Oh, and there's time travel. Not to mention a tremendous cast, Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal, Jenna Malone, Mary McDonnell, Patrick Swayze, Drew Barrymore, Seth Rogen, Catherine Ross, and a tremendous soundtrack featuring the music of Echo and the Bunnymen, Tears for Fears, Duran Duran, The Church, and Joy Division, among others. Great cast, great soundtrack, compelling story, and I still dare anyone to expl- totally explain it to me. You do not have to understand a movie to love it. You heard it here. Next, from 1971, we have Harold and Maude. A pre-release review by Variety said the following about Harold and Maude, and I quote, Harold and Maude has all the fun and gaiety of a burning orphanage, end quote. Sounds like a cult movie to me. This film was a failure at the box office upon its release, but thrived in the cult world when it was embraced by college-age moviegoers in both the United States and Canada. It failed in many places, but was a hit in many college towns. In his book, Cult Movies, Danny Peary writes, quote, While Harold and Maude is at best only intermittently funny, there are some brilliant comic moments, which is to be expected when you're dealing with a 20-year-old suicidal Harold, played by Bud Court, and his relationship with octogenarian Maude, the wonderful Ruth Gordon. Everyone in Harold's life, his mother, uncle, priest, psychiatrist, is horrified about his relationship with Maud and tries instead to fill his mind with ideas of conformity. More from Peary. For Harold, Maud is a liberating force, the only thing in the world that keeps him from conforming. Maud tells Harold simple things, not to back down from life, to be an individual, to experiment, to take chances, to sing and dance, to play music. It's her optimistic nature and her enjoyment of life, of, to live life to the fullest, that give her words meaning. I always felt that the, this is me now, I always felt the ending was unsatisfied, but it doesn't, unsatisfying, but it doesn't hurt the overall impact of the film. Harold and Maude is a film about death and resurrection, where death and life continually overlap. With Maude's help, love, and guidance, Harold transforms into a young man wanting very much to live as his friend taught him. Next, from 1947, we have Nightmare Alley. Romantic idol Tyrone Power plays a geek. Before that, he's an opportunistic, woman-using, blasphemous cad. He seduces every woman who can help him get ahead in the world and tosses them aside once he can no longer exploit them. This movie is ultra-sleazy, no matter if the action is taking place in a place where the rich hang out or if it's in the carnival sideshows and the flea-bitten hotel rooms they stay in, this is pure sleaze. Time Magazine's James Agee wrote, They didn't forget that the original novel they were adapting is essentially intelligent trash, and they have never forgotten that on screen, pretty exciting things can be made of trash. Amen to that. Power's performance is outstanding as he morphs from gum-chewing, soda-drinking, t-shirted, hotshot to cigarette-smoking, boozing, sharply-dressed conniver to mad-eyed, drunken geek. It's an amazing transformation you watch as if you're witnessing a car accident. The noir photography is stunning. 
turning what is essentially a strong drama into a frightening horror film. All the sets, including the carnival and the cathedral, like garden area, are eerie and claustrophobic. Much of the film feels like it's creeping up on you from behind and enveloping you. Nightmare Alley is a great example of film noir and should be seen by all film fans. Check out Guillermo del Toro's 2023 remake while you're at it. Great interpretation. Not 2023, last year. Planet of the Apes from 1968 is next. The ending of this movie was one of the most mind-blowing I have ever seen. I feel bad for anyone who saw it later on and already knew what Charlton Heston's astronaut Taylor was about to encounter on that beach. It truly is one of the best endings in film ever, and the movie itself isn't bad either. The makeup on the apes is terrifying. I remember being really scared of the whole concept of this when I was a kid. Uh, I loved all the original movies in this series. I have mixed feelings about the newer versions. Um, one of my favorite things about this movie is the quality of actors and actresses that they covered in ape makeup. Those weren't nobodies under those layers of latex. There was a lot of talent under there. Parts of this are quite campy. Heston overacts as usual. Uh, but here's another movie that checks all of those cult boxes. I'm a big Dr. Zayas fan, by the way. Next from 1984 is Repo Man. I'm going to read two things to you that will tell you everything you need to know about Alex Cox is punk sci-fi action comedy. The first is from The Poster, a poster that hung in my dorm room at BU for a while. Meet Otto. He's a clean-cut kid in a dirty business. He's a repo man. He steals cars legally. Now, he's out to repossess a 64 Chevy Malibu with an amazing reward of $20,000. But Otto is not alone. There are others who want the car and will do anything to get it. The risks are great because hidden in the trunk is something so incredible it could destroy them all. We'll give you a hint. It glows in the dark. It's 4 a.m. Do you know where your car is? That's all on the poster. Amazing. The second bit is from the Repo Man's Code that's recited by Bud, played by Harry Dean Stanton. I shall not cause harm to any vehicle nor the personal contents thereof, nor through inaction let that vehicle or the personal contents thereof come to harm. End quote. That's all I'm giving you about this one. Oh, and the music is terrific. Next, from 1971, Vanishing Point. Speed means freedom of the soul. The question is not when he's going to stop, but who's going to stop him. So says DJ Super Soul, played by Cleavon Little, as he broadcasts the exploits of Kowalski, played by Barry Newman. A man on a mission that we're really not sure of what it is at times. But it makes for an interesting film for the most part. A film that was seen in more than a few drive-ins during my youth. Our mysterious protagonist is an ex-cop, ex-war hero, ex-professional race car driver, and current nobody knows. Here's what critic John Carroll had to say about Vanishing Point. Quote, The youth cult ate this up. Never mind that the picture makes little sense, because these were the years when stoned and tripping moviegoers were so thankful for any cinematic puzzle slash head trip that they were willing to give the filmmakers the benefit of the doubt and believe he really had something to say. While pretending to deal with everything, Vanishing Point is about nothing. Burn this film. End quote. <laughs> wow, everyone's a critic. Yet I have to agree with a lot of what Carol was saying. Danny Peary in his book Cult Movies 2 adds, quote, There is much in Vanishing Point to dislike. The dialogue is stupid and trite. All the women are portrayed as love objects willing to hop in the sack with any lonely stranger. The, editing, the, the ending makes little sense. There is much in Vanishing Point that is confusing, end quote. Correct. 
And yet this is a cult film. Cult films are anything but perfect, and a ton of them have distasteful themes and events. Peary then says something positive. He says, but the scenery we glimpse is indeed breathtaking, and the camera work from fast-moving vehicles and helicopters is stunning. This film was definitely one of many films at the time that tried to cash in on the success of Bullet from 1968 by cranking out movies with elongated car chases. Nothing ever came close to Bullet, by the way. Next, from 1971, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So shines a good deed in a weary world. I'm sure you've all seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and I'd venture a guess that you have fond feelings about it. Your memories of a magical candy land with chocolate rivers and edible everything. But do you remember how sick and twisted and disturbing this movie is? Some of it is high-octane nightmare fuel. Danny Peary calls it, quote, the strangest children's film ever made. It's neither a children's film nor an adult film. Its adult characters, for the most part, are scary or foolish. Its children characters, except for Charlie, are brats. Even the most benign transgression is punished with inordinate violence. End quote. Yeah, it's really messed up. Willy Wonka is terrifying. His total 180 at the end scared the hell out of me as a kid. Does this guy have serious mental issues that need professional attention? How is someone like that even allowed to be around children in the first place? And what about that acid trip of a boat ride on the SS Wonkatania? The imagery in that looks like stuff out of American Horror Story. There's a worm slithering across someone's lips. There's a chicken being beheaded. The Oompa Loompas also scared the hell out of me, just like the flying monkeys in The Wizard of Oz. I must have an issue with, you know, the workers of like the dwarfs in Snow White too. All that being said, this is a tremendous film. It happens to be our musical director Andy's favorite movie, and I respect his opinion on all things. Gene Wilder is tremendous, and there is no other actor in the history of acting that could have pulled off this performance. Danny Peary again, quote, Willy Wonka is everything that family movies claim to be but aren't. Witty, frightening, exciting, and best of all, Truly imaginative, end quote. Spot on, Mr. Peary. Our final cult film on today's list is out of alphabetical order for a reason. The previous films discussed today were American films. The next one comes to us from Hong Kong. I saved it for last in order to announce a season three episode highlighting international cult movies. Other countries have cults too, you know. Look for that next season. And our first international cult movie is, from 1973, Enter the Dragon. According to Danny Peary in Cult Movies, quote, Between 1972 and 1975, the talk of the film industry, in addition to porno films, was the martial arts movie, Chop Sockies, as the genre was dubbed, that were being churned out in Hong Kong, end quote. Many of those films were made by the dear friends of cinema wellmen, the Shaw Brothers, I usually don't do this, but I wanted to include a lengthy excerpt from Peary's cult movies book because I think it perfectly describes what this genre is all about. Quote, the martial arts films were influenced by ritualistic life and death combat found in such diverse forms as ancient Chinese drama, opera, folklore, and fairy tales. Jacobian revenge plays, American pulp fiction and superhero comics, Japanese samurai pictures, Italian muscleman epics, European-made westerns, and Hollywood fantasy films. These blood-soaked spectacles in which every character is proficient in kung fu, and it is not uncommon 
for even the most run-of-the-mill fights to include castrations, beheadings, disembowelments, eyes gouged out, throats slid open, and backs and necks broken. End quote. Wow. Well done, Mr. Peary. Thank you, and thank you to Peary for writing all three of those cult movie books that I used and quoted many times during this episode. Enter the Dragon starred the one and only Bruce Lee, the greatest martial artist to ever appear in films. While other actors won their film fights with the aid of special effects, pulleys, trampolines, fake props, Lee refused to use any of those tricks. He showed only what was real or at least possible. Some of his fastest movements were not able to be captured at regular speed by cameramen. He was that fast. He was that good. Enter the Dragon grossed more than 20 times what it cost to make in the United States alone. It's Lee's most widely seen film and the last film he completed before his untimely death. Peary calls it, quote, arguably the best, most colorful kung fu film ever made, end quote. And I'm not here to argue with Danny Peary about movies. I'll even let him sum this one up. Quote, while the flaws are abundant, they are trivialized by the spectacular kung fu sequences that take place every few minutes. Enter the Dragon is on a comic book level for sure, but great entertainment nevertheless. And most significantly, it stars the finest action hero in cinema history in one of his few roles, the one and only Bruce Lee, at his remarkable best. Thanks once again to author Danny Peary for his huge assist in preparing this episode. Uh, Another thanks to my good friend Larry, who helped me narrow down the field at the very end. Much appreciated, Larry. And that is a wrap for Cult Movies 2, 15 more films that inspire an unhealthy level of devotion. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll be back next week when we present Which Was Worse, number five, where we'll get all claustrophobic and compare two movies that take place in elevators. We give you Devil versus Elevator. In one of these, people are trapped in an elevator with a killer. In the other, People are trapped in an elevator with Satan. I wonder if either elevator has a valid inspection certificate. They better. Those movies sound terrible. But please join us anyway. And until then, take care.